Good morning. Please stand while we read God's word. From Matthew 15, 32 through 39. Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. I do not want to send them away hungry or they may collapse on the way. His disciples answered, where could we get enough bread in this remote place to feed such a crowd? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied, a few, a few small fish. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. He took the seven loaves and the fish, and when he had given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples, and they in turn to the people. They ate and they were satisfied. Afterward, disciples picked up the seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate the 4,000 were 4,000 men, besides women and children. After Jesus had sent the crowd away, he got into the boat and went to the vicinity of Magadan. And public speaking is not my favorite thing in the world, but I'm so honored that you asked me to read from the scripture today. So. Thank you. All right, you may be seated. Good morning, everybody. What a great morning. It feels like summer outside. It's been a fun weekend. I don't know if you all remember, I saw the movie schedule uh, that came out for summer on Friday nights on the festival lawn. I didn't see this movie on there, but one of my favorite childhood movies was the movie Hook. Does everybody remember this movie? It's like a, it's like a uh, modern take on Peter Pan. So what happens is Peter grows up, becomes Robin Williams, and he is a grouchy lawyer who finds his way back to Neverland. And there's all kinds of great things that go on as he's trying to rediscover his old self. He's trying to rediscover Neverland. And <laughs> when he gets there, there's a new sheriff in town, Rufio, way cooler than Peter Pan ever was. He's got dyed hair. It's such a movie of the 90s. All the cool stuff. He has an earring. Peter Pan never had that. So Rufio is, is the new cool guy in town, and he's in this battle with Robin Williams, who's Peter Pan, but doesn't realize it. And there's a scene where they sit down for this big feast, and as they sit down at the table, they say grace, and then they begin to eat. But there's no food. And all the kids are scooping stuff onto their plates, and they're biting like they're eating corn on the cob and ribs, and Robin Williams is sitting there like, where's the food? What's going on? They're like, go ahead, eat, eat, Peter. And he's like, Gandhi ate more than this. Where's the food? And I wonder if in today's reading, that's how some of you have felt when you hear the story of the feeding of the 5,000. That was cool for them, but I've never seen anything like that happen. Seems like kind of a Neverland story, a miracle of Jesus that was something that happened in the first century, but I've never seen something like that happen in the 21st century. And it's almost like if we just use our imaginations, maybe we can make believe that that kind of thing happens, but what am I supposed to take from a story where 5,000 people and now 4,000 people are fed, and yet I've never seen something like this happen? Here's something curious about this story. In the Gospel of Matthew, which is what we're studying right now in chapter 15, we get the feeding of the 4,000. But if you'll turn just two pages to the left, 
Matthew also relates to us the feeding of the 5,000. And the feeding of the 5,000 is in all four of the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, I point this out because outside of the crucifixion and the resurrection, this feeding is the only story that's in all four Gospels. The only story that's in all four Gospels. It's kind of, or the only miracle that's in all four Gospels. It's kind of amazing of all the ones to pick, why this one? Why this feeding miracle? What, what are we supposed to see about Jesus that is so characteristic that all four gospel authors said, you know, outside of the death and resurrection, if you want to know about Jesus, you need to know about this feeding miracle. You need to know what he did on a hillside in Galilee when 5,000 men, maybe 20,000 people were fed an evening dinner by Jesus. See, I would call this kind of a characteristic miracle of Jesus. There are things in this story that we need to know about Jesus to understand who he is and what he's doing. And this morning, I want to point out four characteristics that we learn about Jesus from these two stories. Now, again, there are two feedings, and I'll talk about why that is here in a moment. So whether we're talking about the 4,000 or the 5,000, all of these observations are true. The first thing is, in both stories, we see an unstoppable compassion from Jesus. We see an unstoppable compassion from Jesus. See, after Jesus had been teaching all day, these people had long attention spans. Jesus has been teaching them for the whole day. They haven't eaten. In fact, they've been in this area for three days listening to Jesus. And when night falls and it gets to be late in the evening, Jesus has compassion on the crowds, it says, because they didn't have anything to eat. He has compassion because this is a problem of his own making. Jesus orchestrated this. He didn't give a lunch break. He didn't, he didn't bring in catered food for the masses. He called them out to a desolate place, taught for three days, and then realizes, oh, these people haven't eaten. So he says, we've got to do something about this. And the reason is because he looks out on the crowds and he has compassion on their needs. Now, what's interesting about Jesus, we've talked about this in our Matthew series, is sometimes we, we like to think of Jesus, or we've been taught to think of Jesus as kind of a stoic, you know, who doesn't show any emotion, speaks only in very brief proverbs, and is detached like a phantom from the people around him. But that is to deny the humanity, the very human picture we get in the Gospels where Jesus experiences all that it means to be a human being but without sin. So anything that you experience as a human that is not sinful, Jesus experienced. Hunger, fatigue, frustration, anger, compassion, sadness, joy. Jesus experiences the whole range of the human experience in the Gospels. And as I talked about, B.B. Warfield, who's a 19th century theologian in America, wrote a little book called The Emotional Life of the Lord, where he goes through and catalogs every time Jesus experiences emotion. And it might surprise you that the most common emotion Jesus experiences is compassion. More than anything else, more than anger, more than joy, more than sorrow, Jesus experiences compassion for his people. Jesus is moved. He's he feels for 
the hurts of the world. You remember when Jesus is at the tomb of Lazarus, and he looks at the tomb knowing in just a few minutes he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. But it says, he is so moved in his spirit. That word almost means agitated in his spirit that he weeps. Jesus weeps. He looks out over Jerusalem and he weeps because he's moved that the people are like sheep without a shepherd. Here he's moved because the people have come and they've given their time and their energy to listen to Jesus, but they are hungry and needing somewhere to eat. Jesus is moved by what happens in your life. The thing about it is Jesus didn't actually just have to empathize. He could sympathize because he was probably hungry as well. Before this story, if you put this story in context, Jesus, when he's feeding the 4,000 in chapter 15, has been healing and teaching and working. He tries to send everybody away, and yet the crowds are still there. Jesus, in, in a word, is probably fed up and hungry. But Jesus thinks about the people's hunger. And I want to encourage you this morning that Jesus, if Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow... Jesus still has compassion now for the things that we experience. Jesus, it says in Hebrews, is constantly interceding for us. He's constantly going before God, praying for the needs of his people. And those needs are driven by the same compassion now as they were driven then. Jesus sees you. He sees your needs. He sees the things that you long for. He sees the things that you sacrifice. He sees the things that you've left behind to follow him. And he has compassion an unstoppable compassion. There's no instance in the Bible where Jesus is described as having compassion and he doesn't do something about it. Isn't that amazing? Jesus never is moved without taking action. He always does something. Now, it's not always what the people thought that he would do. And that's true today as well. It's not always the solution that people want. It's not always, God, I wish you would solve my problem this way. But Jesus always moves when he's moved to compassion. He always acts. It's like in Exodus where God is described this way. When the people of Israel cry out over and over and over again, God says, I have heard the cries of my people, and I'm going to send my messenger to set them free. The compassion of Christ that you see in this story is characteristic of his whole ministry. Now, the second thing that goes along with this is there is an insurmountable need in this story. There is an insurmountable need. The people are famished. The people are hungry. And we sometimes describe living paycheck to paycheck. These people would have killed to live paycheck to paycheck. These people were mostly living meal to meal. In the first century world, if you were in this area in the Galilee, you probably were wondering where your one meal of the day or one of two meals of the day was going to come from. Either you were producing your food as a fisherman or in some kind of agrarian role, or you were bartering for some food in some kind of role, but you were wondering each day where your daily bread was going to come from. That's why it's so powerful when Jesus teaches us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. This would have been a reality for those people. For most of us, this is not a reality. This is not something we've ever had to worry about that you wake up, not just thinking about the cares of the day, but am I going to get to eat today? So Jesus is meeting a very real and very insurmountable need. The fact that Jesus does this twice, I think, is really an insight into his character. So sometimes when 
people compare gospel accounts. They say, well, why are there two episodes of this? Why do you have the feeding of the 5,000? And then Mark and Matthew also tell us that there was a feeding of the 4,000. And sometimes I love to just pause for a minute and kind of deal with these objections. Because if you've read through the gospel, you've probably thought this before. Is, is this a sign that maybe they missed something when they're putting these together? Is this like a repeat that they copy and pasted and forgot to take out? Or is this something that maybe makes us believe that this is not a true account? Right? If you watch the History Channel about the Bible or about the first century, you're bound to hear somebody come on with a bunch of letters after their name saying, well, the fact that there's two of these means that it couldn't have ever happened. <laughs> I think the reverse is true. Matthew and Mark are telling us that this happened twice because Jesus probably did these things multiple times, right? So why, why in one account do you have two lepers that are healed and the other and you have one leper? Because Jesus probably healed a couple dozen lepers. And why is the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew and the Sermon on the Plain in Luke? Because when he went to a new place, he probably preached that sermon over and over. This was, these were his greatest hits, you know? When he would go to a new place, you got, you got to play the hits. You got to do the Sermon on the Mount. That's what people want to hear. And so when the crowds gather and demanded food, Jesus feeds them. He meets their most basic need. On many occasions, he does this. So this, this need, though, I, I want to put this in perspective. So in the first account, there's 5,000 people. In the second account, there's 4,000. And the gospel writers tell us there are 5,000 men or 4,000 men. This is kind of a shorthand for counting just groups of people, counting families. And so... We would probably estimate that the number with the women and children is maybe close to 20,000 people, depending on how big these families were. It could be astronomical, and if they had babysitting or not. We don't know. It's not in the text. But let's say it's 20,000 people. That's the size of the Paycom Center or the Chesapeake Arena or the Ford Center, whenever, you know, whatever name you want to call it in Oklahoma City. 20,000 people filling up a stadium, and Jesus commands his disciples, you give them something to eat. See, what happened in this story is the disciples have had a little counsel among themselves. And they're like, it's getting late. People are hungry. They haven't eaten anything. Jesus is tired. They go to Jesus and they, they make a recommendation. You need to send these people away. You need to tell them to go into the villages and get something to eat. Well, they weren't just concerned about the people. The disciples, I wonder, were, they, they may have been concerned that this group was about to riot. A bunch of hangry people been out in the wilderness for three days. They're worried that something disastrous is going to happen. And Jesus, in his characteristic style, when they say, you should send the people away and let them get something to eat, Jesus says, why don't you give them something to eat? Why don't you give them something to eat? So Philip is doing a back-of-the-napkin calculation here. He's like, Lord, that would be 200 denarii. Denarii is a day's wages, like an average day's wages. So this is maybe 200 days' worth of labor. Some people estimate that this is around $40,000. So Jesus is like, why don't, you, why don't you give them something to eat? The disciples are itinerant ministers. They love everything to follow Jesus. This is absurd that Jesus would ask them to do this. The disciples are completely overwhelmed by the earthly problem and the earthly solution. The disciples are overwhelmed that you have a mass of people that they could work uh, for a long time into the future and not be able to pay the debt of feeding these people. I want to pause here and point something out to you. Sometimes we say things like, God will never call you to do something that you couldn't do. 
or God will never give you more than you can handle, which is kind of a twisted, not quite right version of what it says in 1 Corinthians 10, where it says, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. But God will not give you a temptation without providing a way out. He won't tempt you in a way more than you can bear. See, when we say things like God will never give you more than you can handle, God will never, never uh, ask you to do something that you couldn't do, he does that all the time. <laughs> and if you follow Jesus for any amount of time, you realize most of the Christian life is something you're not capable of doing. And if you haven't experienced this, the bar in your life for what God's going to do is too low. It's too low. If everything that you expect God to do in your life is something that you could already accomplish on your own, you're missing what God wants to do. God commands people all the time to do things that they can't do. Jesus is making this command just to show the disciples how impossible it would be under their own strength to do this. Right? And if you think about the whole thing that Jesus is doing, I'm going to leave, I'm going to die on a cross, rise from the dead, I'm going to leave these 11 guys who have proven themselves to be not even above average in what I've taught them to do, and that's going to change the world. That is an impossible ask. It's impossible. It is so far above what they are capable of doing, but Jesus says, I'm going to send my spirit who's going to help you. I'm going to give you my word. I'm going to give you gifts. I'm going to give you a community. I'm going to build my church. I am going to be in this with you. I am going to be the one that's doing it. You just need to be the vessel. Are you willing to be the vessel? Jesus is going to show them this in this story. Think about this. What Jesus does is he requires something impossible from them and then uses them to do it. That's the Christian life. Something totally impossible. I want you to go out and I want you to love your enemies. Really, the, the real enemies, not the fake enemies. The real enemies, I want you to love them. That is impossible for us to do. And God's like, and I'm going to do it through you. I'm going to use you to change the world like a mustard seed or like uh, what we talked about a few weeks ago, like leaven that's just working its way through the loaf. That's what I'm going to do through you, even though with men it would be impossible. Jesus is operating in a totally different sphere of thinking than the disciples. The disciples bring Jesus what they have. In the first story, we get five loaves and two fish. In the second story, with the 4,000, we have seven loaves and a few small fish. This is a first century Happy Meal. This is not even like a full adult dinner. This is, these are little fish. These are little loaves. They, I mean, there has to have been more than this in the crowd. But they come to Jesus with this meager offering and say, this is all we've got. Here's, here's the mindset shift that happens in this story that I think is fundamental to what Jesus wants to do in our lives. They saw what they had as proof that they couldn't do what was in front of them. Jesus saw what they had as the starting point to do what he wanted them to do. See, for them, they bring five loaves and two fish and say, see, that's all we've got. Jesus takes the five loaves and two fish and says, see what we've got? Five loaves and two fish. We can work with this. We can work with this. And in one of the stories, it's a little boy's sack lunch. They're like, oh, that's, that's good, Jesus says. We can use that. Bring that up here. We're going to feed everybody with this. They think what, what we can do, this is all we have to work with. Jesus thinks, imagine what God could do with this. You know, God does this all through the Bible. It's not just these, this meal that he does. Think about Moses' staff. When, 
When God says to Moses, I'm going to send you back to Egypt and I'm going to deliver my people through you, do you remember what Moses said? Impossible. Couldn't happen. Why? I can't even speak. I have a stutter. I can't, I, can't, I can't be your spokesman. I can't even speak. And besides that, he doesn't mention, I'm wanted for capital murder in Egypt. I'm a refugee. I can't go back there. And God says, look at what we've got to work with. Look at what we've got here. See that staff? I'm going to do miracles with that staff. That dead piece of wood is actually going to split the Red Sea, and my people are going to walk across on it. Imagine what we've got to work with, Moses, he says. And you've got a brother. That's like icing on the cake. He'll speak. You do the miracles. This is going to be amazing. Same thing with Gideon. You know, when God calls Gideon, this is one of the most hilarious episodes of the Bible, if, you're, if you understand what he's doing. He, he is threshing wheat, which is what you're supposed to do on top of a mountain, because when you thresh wheat, you, you crush it up, and then you throw it all up in the air, and the wind blows away the chaff, and the seeds that are heavy fall down to the ground. So you need to be up in an exposed, elevated place with wind. And it says in that story that Gideon is threshing wheat in a wine press. Now, a wine press is a hole in the ground where you want things to run down to the bottom. It is the lowest place around. And Gideon, this is like the sign of futility of all futilities. He is throwing up wheat in a wine press where there is no wind. And God's like, that's my guy. That's the guy. And he, and he says, Gideon, mighty man, I have something for you. Gideon's like, you got the wrong guy, wrong number. He says, I am the weakest person of the weakest clan, of the weakest tribe of Israel. And God says, look at what we've got to work with. Look at what we've got to work with. And you remember how this story goes. God proves this to him over and over. They raise an army, they bring it down to about a hundredth of its size, and they put the foreign army to flight because God sees the starting point, not as a proof that you can't do it, but as the tool that he's going to do to accomplish his purpose. Probably the greatest example in all of Scripture is David, the little shepherd boy, that when Samuel comes to anoint the next king of Israel, his family doesn't even bring him. Right? They bring all the other brothers, the seven brothers, who are big and strong military men, and Samuel gets there, and he looks at him, he says, no, that's not it. That's it. Do you have any other sons? And they're like, we have one, but we didn't even think he was worth bringing. He's the littlest, scrawniest. He's actually tending the sheep. Samuel's like, that's the one that God wants. Bring him and anoint him the king over all of Israel. See, God sees our problems in a totally different way than we do. We, we see our loaves and fish as proof we cannot do it. God sees our loaves and fish as a starting point for what he's going to do in our life. So we go to God and we say, God, there's an insurmountable problem in my life. There's a need that can't be met. There's, I've tried everything. There's no way this is going to happen. And God says, what do you have? What do you have to give? What a great starting point that is. Because the story of your life that God is telling is not going to be one where on your own strength you're the hero. It's going to be one where God uses you and God is the hero. So bring your loaves and your fish because Jesus is going to take that and multiply it. The third thing I want you to see in this story is that this is a kingly feast that Jesus prepares. So Jesus looks out, he has compassion on the people, he is 
taking an insurmountable need through the world's eyes, and he's going to provide a feast for these people. Now, everything about this story to a first century person would have indicated that this is kingly in nature. This is not just a peasant teacher who has a big crowd of people. He's up in the Galilee, and he's sitting on the side of a mountain, and he is spreading out his people in front of him, and he is preparing a table for them to eat. This is what a king would do. And in fact, it's, it's kind of worse than that, honestly. This area is the seedbed for the zealot rebellion. You, you guys might remember in the disciples, you have Simon the Zealot. Okay, the Zealots, if you've seen the movie Sicari, the Zealots were the people who went around in urban areas and basically did what we would call terrorist attacks against the Roman authorities, right? It's the zealots, actually, who provoke the Romans just 30 years after this to come back and destroy Jerusalem and burn it to the ground. This is a volatile group of people. And the zealots first began up in this area of the country around the time that Jesus is teaching there. So Simon the Zealot, we we would consider Simon the Zealot to be almost a terrorist in today's world. Somebody who is a powder keg waiting to blow up, a political radical who wants to do anything he can to get rid of the ruling authorities. So Jesus is in zealot country. He has a zealot among his disciples. He has an army of 20,000 people, and he's feeding the troops. To somebody like Herod or somebody like Pontius Pilate, this is an act of treason. What Jesus is doing is threatening to come back to Jerusalem and overthrow the given order and set up a kingdom for himself, and he has miraculous provisions for his own army. This is a kingly act because Jesus is is not just raising up a big group of people. He's been indoctrinating them too. He's been teaching them for three days about the kingdom of heaven, which is coming, and there will be judgment and righteousness, and he will reign over this kingdom forever. This is politically charged at the highest level. Right? I couldn't help but think yesterday when we were watching the coronation, there's a link in that ceremony between the royal and the spiritual, that a first century person would have understood far better than we do in America. They would have realized that political power and spiritual power often go together. They would have realized that in a ceremony like Jesus being crowned king, that doesn't just mean something spiritual in this ethereal world. It means he's making a very legitimate claim to run the place. I don't know if you noticed in yesterday's ceremony, one of the things that was really cool is they presented King Charles with the Gospels of of Augustine of Canterbury, who was one of the first missionaries sent by the Pope in the 6th century to the British Isles. And they still have this book that, uh, that Augustine came over with from Italy to England. It's 1,400 years old. It's actually the oldest relic of all the things that were in the ceremony yesterday. It predates the monarchy itself. And the, it's usually the archbishop, but yesterday, the moderator of the Church of Scotland presented this Bible to the king. And here's what he says. This is in every coronation ritual in England for the last thousand years. Receive this book, the most valuable thing that the world affords. 
Here is wisdom. This is the royal law. These are the lively oracles of God. See, what Jesus has been doing is he's not just feeding them physically. He's been feeding them spiritually. He's been teaching them. He's been giving them these living words. See, his claim as a king, the reason this is a royal feast is that his claim as a king is not just spiritual, not just physical. It is both. He's making the claim that everything about their life is going to have to change because they are subjects now of a new kingdom. They are under the reign of Christ. And we can see that in physical terms like the coronation, but, but that is such a shadow of what Jesus is claiming here. King of kings, Lord of lords, there is no other. Notice the contrast in the story before this in chapter 14 in this story. Herod throws a feast for his people. And it's a wild, raucous party where a girl dances, and he says, I'll give you anything you want up to half the kingdom. And she says, I want the head of John the Baptist. Because John had been threatening King Herod. This is just, I wish we had time to do a whole week on John the Baptist's death. But basically what happens with John the Baptist is he gets arrested because he's been saying things like, it's not lawful for you to take your brother's wife. In today's world, just be like, just don't go there. Just preach on other stuff. Don't talk about that. I mean, this is pretty pointed. Herod is the king of this area. He has taken his brother's wife. Maybe just leave that alone for a little bit. But John has been preaching these sermons about this, and so Herod finally puts him in jail. And this woman who he has taken, her daughter, when she dances, requests, the only thing that she and her mom want is the head of John the Baptist. And Herod delivers it. Herod goes, he sends his jailer, his executioner down, and they bring back the head of John the Baptist. And you read this story and you think, what a crazy thing to die for. What a crazy thing that the greatest prophet, Jesus said, that's ever been born of woman, dies over this, over this man's trifle. And you get this contrast in these two stories. You have this selfish, indulgent king throwing a party for his people. And in the next story, you have a selfless, compassionate king who gives his own life for the lives of his people. See, as silly as what Herod put John to death for, Jesus died for the least of our sins. So the things that we would consider, that is such a silly thing to die for. Jesus is willing to go to the cross so that you didn't have to spend eternity apart from him. These two kings could not be more different. What Matthew's doing here is he's saying, look what kind of king this is. You've got worldly power, which takes from people. It drains the kingdom. It exalts itself. And then you have heavenly power where Jesus gives gifts to his people and sends them out and empowers them and feeds them, and he himself is sacrificed on their behalf. Jesus, at this royal feast, is showing us what life in the kingdom is is like living under the one true king. And the last thing I want you to see is that there is an astonishing excess at the end. 
In the first story, the disciples take the bread that Jesus has broken. He's given thanks. He's, he gives it to them. And as they've passed it out, they're realizing there's a lot of leftovers. So they start to pick them up, and they get 12 baskets full of leftovers. And in the 4,000, they pick up seven baskets of leftovers. And what we're supposed to see in this is that when the disciples actually begin to serve, when they take what they have, they give it to God, God multiplies it, uses them, gives them as vessels to the people to serve them, they reap the excess. It's, it's like when you go and serve somewhere, like when a big group of us went and served at Night to Shine a few months ago, and we all left there thinking we were the ones that were blessed from doing that. See, God has designed the universe in such a way that the one who serves is the one who is served. The one who gets to give up, the one who gets to give, the one who gets to wear themselves out for other people is the one who is filled. It's this amazing spiritual principle that Jesus shows us in this story that the more you surrender to God and you're a vessel to give it away to other people, the more you are filled and fed. See, the kingdom of heaven is not the kind of kingdom where God doesn't take care of his servants. It's the kind of kingdom where God feeds his servants abundantly and uses them to do his work. This is something we see all over the Bible. In Ephesians 3.20, it says, God does immeasurably more than all we can ask or think for those who love him. I remember Kirk telling me one time that his dad's favorite verse was Ephesians 6.40. Being that I do have a seminary degree, I thought, I don't know if Ephesians 6 has that many verses. Well, it's Ephesians 3.20 twice. God, if you're going to do far more abundantly than anything we can ask or think, give me double that. Give me twice that. Give me even more than I can imagine that would mean in my life. And the question for us is, okay, so are you going to do what the disciples did? Bring what you have. Be a part of the plan. Trust in Christ. Go out. Serve the people. And then you reap the excess. So let's go back to the movie Hook. So they're sitting at this banquet table, and there's no food. And Robin Williams is kind of freaking out about it. And he's thinking, is this just a pretend world? Is this, this just something where it's something that kids get excited about, but you grow out of it? And like I said, I think that's kind of the way some of us see this story is. This is kind of a fairy tale type thing. But what happens over the course of the meal, and this is not a perfect example, because what happens is he and Rufio get into this shouting match, uh, insulting each other that I wouldn't recommend for young kids. And what happens is when... Robin Williams realizes who, who he is. He realizes his identity. And he needs the food, right? He rears back his spoon, and he's getting ready to throw it at Rufio. It's in that moment that the food appears. And from the moment he flings his spoon, the mashed potatoes appear and go all over the face of Rufio. And then they just have this epic food fight. It's a great, like I said, wonderful kids movie. But I was thinking about that scene, and I thought... That's kind of the way it is with this miracle. Is God's design in this story is not to show us that he's going to give us all the things that we might think we need. The design in the miracle is to show you that when you're on mission and you get to the point where you really are depending and needing him, everything will be provided for you. It's not until the moment when you've leaned all your weight, you've exhausted your options, you have thrown yourself on to Jesus that you realize every one of your needs is provided to accomplish the things that he has given you to do. 
It's, this story is an expansion of Matthew 6, 33, where it says, Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, and then all these things will be added unto you. That's the Lord's provision for us. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are not a God who takes from your people. You are a God who gives abundantly to your people. Father, we can think of so many moments where we had an insurmountable need and you filled it. And Father, give us the faith to know that you operate in your own wisdom and in your own strength, and you do not need us, but you want us, you use us, you fill us, you commission us to be a part of your kingdom, to serve alongside you. Father, I pray this morning that you would give us the courage to step out and and to do the things that seem impossible for us because you've called us to do them, to love one another, to live holy lives to give ourselves for the poor and the oppressed and the people that don't know you. Father, to take what we have and watch you multiply it and serve people with it. Father, fill us this morning, not just with your word, but with your strength and with your joy and with your peace as we go from here. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning we're going to celebrate communion.